Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. As we spoke to William Dudley and Mr. Lacker, Jeffrey Lacker, the former president of Richmond yesterday, today we speak with a genuine beast. He's from St. Louis, James Bullard, back to 2008, who set the economic community on its ear a number of years ago, talking about regime change, the idea of how a central bank should act. The PhD from Indiana joins us this morning, and our questions, of course, always led at the beginning, unlike at the press conference, by our Michael McKee. Michael? Well, good morning, Jim. I'm not sure what the real beast means, but uh, we are happy to have you with us on Bloomberg Radio and Television this morning. Uh, there's a lot going on. Happy to uh, be here. Obviously, to talk about, uh, but there is an elephant in the room, or at least it will be imminently in the room. So let me start with that. Uh, Sherrod Brown, chair of the Senate Banking Committee, told us last night, as far as he knows, it is down to Lael Brainerd or Jay Powell for the next Fed chair. You've worked with both. What would be the policy differences between the two? How would the Fed change, if at all? Uh, I think no matter how this comes out, there'd be a lot of continuity in Fed policy. Uh, both of these uh, players have, uh, you know, long track records uh, at the Fed. Uh, so certainly uh, it's a big committee. Also, I think uh, people have to keep that in mind. Uh, and, and there's a lot of experience on the committee. So I think we'd see uh, continuity. Would you anticipate any change in the timeline for tightening policy? And I'm going to use that broadly to mean tapering and raising rates and forward guidance, anything that you might do between one or the other? You know, I, I, it's a committee decision, and and it's uh, as I just mentioned, it's a it's a big committee, and uh, lots of opinions around the table. Great staffs around the uh, Federal Reserve and at the uh, Board of Governors. So, uh, it's a collective process, and we have to react to the data and and make decisions. So, uh, the the chair's job is really to guide that process. I would say. Uh, and, and get to a good uh, compromise in the center of the committee. Well, certainly you've got opinions and you've expressed them on uh, what the Fed should be doing, uh, the possibility of a, a faster move to tighten policy. But you've also, as you just said, put that on the data. The data are showing very strong inflation and it shows up in the retail sales report this morning. Uh, are you ready to say we should move more quickly? I actually didn't see the report here. I was getting uh, ready for the interview, but the, um, uh, the inflation rate is quite high. The core PCE inflation rate, the committee's favorite measure, is about 3.6%. That's the highest it's been in 30 years, uh, well above our 2% target. And that number already throws out food and energy. So, uh, you know, you're, you're taming the data a little bit when you look at that kind of measure, but it's quite high. It does not have the reputation of moving down uh, very easily. Uh, so I think uh, it behooves the committee to tack in a more hawk hawkish direction. 
uh, in the next couple of meetings so that we're, we're uh, managing the risk of inflation appropriately. Uh, if inflation just happens to go away, uh, we're in great shape for that. We're set up for that. But if inflation doesn't go away uh, as quickly as many are, are currently anticipating, then it's going to be up to the committee to keep inflation under control going forward. Well, when you say tack in a more hawkish direction, are you talking about speeding up the taper, even with a risk of a taper tantrum? Are you talking about changing forward guidance? How would you tack? Uh, I, I think we've gotten past the taper tantrum issue because we went ahead and, and went ahead with the, uh, with the taper here. But the, uh, we could move faster. We kept optionality on this that... Uh, uh, we could speed up the taper if it's appropriate. We have a hot CPI report here. Uh, as you know, I've advocated a faster pace, a 2010 uh, pace. That's 20 uh, per month less on Treasury purchases and 10 less on uh, mortgage-backed security purchases. The reason I propose that is that uh, we would be done tapering at, uh, at the end of the first quarter next year, and that would give us a, a, a little bit earlier uh, moment that we could assess where the data is and decide uh, what to do on, uh, on rate policy. Um, yeah. So I think uh, that's something to consider. I mean, some might say, well, that's, you know, that's faster than they'd like. I don't know. Uh, but uh, we did retain the optionality on this. Jim Bullard, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning. It would be great to get your sense of Bill Dudley's comments about the end value, the end terminal rate that we are expecting for uh, policy, given how high inflation has gone. A lot of people think it's not going to get beyond 2%. He said 3 to 4%. Do you think that that is a realistic end policy rate? Yeah, that's not my base case uh, right now. Uh, I've got, uh, you know, rates only rising to where they were pre-pandemic. And I think it's good to keep in mind here that the pre-pandemic economy was not a zero interest rate economy. So whenever you think we're back to the pre-pandemic levels of output, which we already are, and the, and the pre-pandemic level of uh, labor, uh, labor market performance, uh, then that should be the moment that you're back at the, at the pre-pandemic level of interest rates. We don't really have that kind of plan in place right now, but maybe that's something to uh, think about. I think, you know, these this uh, rate policy and, and tacking hawkishly now could pay uh, great dividends for the committee in the year ahead or the 18 months ahead, because it means that we would have to do less later on and you'd smooth this whole process out some. I think the uh, scenario that uh, Bill Dudley was describing was one where uh, we get uh, behind the data too far and then we have to move more aggressively later. And that was a stop-go type policy that didn't work very well in the 1970s. So I think it it's, uh, makes sense to uh, uh, try to move a little bit more uh, hawkishly here and try to manage the inflation risk. Uh, again, if it all if it all dissipates next year, uh, we're, we'll be fine in that situation. Then we can push out uh, rate increases out into the future. But how high can rates go given the, where the economy is and how quickly, right? I mean, the idea of front-loading rate hikes makes sense to avoid a sort of gloom and doom scenario that Bill Dudley was laying out, 4% rates perhaps uh, setting the economy into recession. But how high could we currently handle given the trillions of dollars of debt that we've incurred? 
Well, I mean, I think the good news is you probably don't have to go to that high of a level to get a, a normal sense of interest rates. I mean, in 2018, 2019, you know, one and a half to two percent uh, was kind of a common level, and that seemed to work pretty well for that uh, pre-pandemic economy. There were some adjustments, some trade issues going on then, and and other other things. But I kind of take it as good news that we wouldn't have to go to that high of a level to remove the accommodation and remove the upward pressure that we're putting on uh, inflation with our current policy. Jim Bowler, Tom Keen, good morning to you, sir. Christopher Waller, who hey, got an upgrade from your shop a few years ago, now governor of the Fed in Washington. You and Chris Waller did a retrospective off your regime paper of 2000. I believe it was 16. I can't quite remember. I want you to discuss now for the economic community, if we're in a regime change where the theories aren't working. Here we are coming out of a natural disaster. We have a China-like boom economy of real and nominal GDP. And then we've got the idea that we have to somehow unwind this to the terminal value. Scope out, given a regime change, the when of a terminal value you're looking out to. Are you looking out six months? Are you looking out to a Cardinals World Series? Or can you responsibly look out five or six years? Uh, I, I think this might be a moment where there, uh, there is potential for uh, regime switching to a higher productivity growth regime. I'm not really to, ready to commit to that right now. But uh, if you look at the data, it's become very volatile. Uh, it's not so clear that we're in the low productivity growth world that uh, I was talking about in 2016. Uh, we might push out of this. Uh, you know, the pandemic is the kind of event that really forces businesses to hustle and to think about how they can use technology uh, to their advantage. They've got a very tight labor market that they're facing. Uh, they're probably dusting off plans that they had around for a long time to use technology in a better mm -hmm. way. So uh, that's very promising, I think, that we could uh, move to a period of higher productivity growth. <clears throat> that would be great for the economy, uh, and it would put upward pressure on uh, interest rates as so well. So if we see that this is a critical theme for Bloomberg surveillance this year, uh, Jim Bola, the idea of the technology overlay being underestimated as we come out of the war shock, the pandemic shock as well. If we get a technology overlay in an upgrade in our statistics, can we get to where instead of a 2% inflation target, that we could migrate to something, as Adam Posen suggests, of a 3% inflation target simply because we have better productivity? No, I, I think you. No, no, I don't think so. You should. You should take the productivity on board. The economy would grow faster, and that would be a sensational thing. Uh, the last time we really had this was the late 1990s, and at that point we were talking about paying off the entire national debt. It didn't happen, but we were talking about it at one point. Yeah. And uh, uh, that just shows you uh, what a big impact uh, this kind of thing can have on macroeconomic performance. So uh, I would not mess around with the inflation target yeah. itself. Uh, that's become an international standard. And if the leading economy in the world decided to mess around with the inflation target, you'd get all this chain reaction all around the world. I think mm -hmm. that would be chaotic and sounds like the 
1970s to me. So I would not uh, try to go in that direction. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I think uh, we may get the uh, the better the uh, higher productivity growth uh, that. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, is kind of promising coming out of this pandemic just because everyone has uh, been experimenting with new technology. Mike, did you see how he treated me there? Like you get treated by Chairman Powell in the press conference. <laughs> I mean, he just laughed right in my face. He, he laughed right in your there. face. Well, uh, that was a, a long-term look at what might happen. Let's talk uh, what the traders all want to know, Jim, and that's uh, the very short term. If you're thinking we should tack in a more hawkish direction, would that speed up the rate of rate increases? Uh, there's right now now in the markets, two rate increases for 2022 and almost a third. Do you think that's realistic? You know, I'm agreeing with the markets uh, right now because I've got two uh, hikes penciled in for 2022. Uh, that's dependent on the data. could evolve uh, going forward, uh, depending on how the data come in. Uh, so uh, I think there are other ways we could uh, tack in a hawkish direction. I think we could uh, play up the idea that maybe we don't have to wait all the way to the end of the taper in order to uh, raise the policy rate. I mean, historically, when we've done this before, we have not wanted to be raising the policy rate while we're still tapering. But you could argue that the taper's all priced in, and uh, what's going to happen over the next eight months is just follow through on something that's already priced in. And so that, that would sort of relieve any constraint that the committee might feel about uh, when the appropriate time was to uh, commence with liftoff. Uh, another consideration I think that I put on the table and have put on the table is that we could allow runoff of the balance sheet uh, at the end of the taper uh, instead of waiting on that decision for, uh, for a while. So I think that that would be a way to um, uh, you know, have a somewhat uh, more hawkish policy than otherwise. You know, we can debate how big an impact that would have, but you could allow the balance sheet to be running down uh, sooner than is currently priced into the market. Uh, one last question is, and we'll keep it in the sailing uh, category. Uh, when you tack, you run the risk of the wind coming on too hard and uh, you move the sail too much and, and you can capsize. And I'm wondering what your view of the U.S. economy is right now. Since policy works with a lag, do you risk cutting off the recovery by raising rates too soon if inflation is transitory? Yeah, well, I love this. I mean, if you're going to be in sailing, you've got to be good at what you do. And I think the same is true of the committee. Uh, we have to react to data in the appropriate way and, and manage the risks appropriately. I liked the chair's emphasis on risk management uh, at the recent press conference. Uh, I think that's exactly what's going on here. Uh, you have two scenarios, one where inflation uh, dissipates as the economy continues to reopen and another one where it doesn't, and you gotta be ready for the, the second one. Um, if the first one comes, we're in great position for that already, so it's really the second one that we have to, uh, uh, we have to get ready for here, and I hope we've got mm. the gusts of wind. Uh, we're, we're playing that just right here. Jim Bullard, thank you so much. James Bullard is, of course, the president of the St. Louis Fed, and of course, our thanks to Michael McKee uh, as well, not only on retail sales and this boom American economy, but on the de delicacies, I should say, of the Fed uh, forward.
this is the conversation of the day with great respect for James Bullard of the St. Louis Fed. For Global Wall Street, the TD Securities call is simply stunning. It's Mark McCormick and his resilient dollar with some nuances for next year. But leading the charge there is Priya Misra, head of global rate strategy, on a call that goes out into the far future. Priya, on the cover of your stunning report, you have the most important chart I've seen in fixed income in 20 years. Dominic Constum at Credit Suisse showing the, the Fed funds rate in the OIS view out, the feathers coming off the rate of everyone's guesstimates that we've gotten wrong, wrong, wrong. You say once again, we've got it wrong. So, you know, this, this sort of tells you that rate strategists or the market uh, doesn't always call the Fed uh, right. But, you know, our thought right now is the market's been really torn with high inflation, you know, we and, and how long it will persist. And so the market's pricing in the first rate hike literally right after when, when tapering ends. Now, our view is that there are uh, huge COVID impacts on inflation. That's going to start to decelerate. I also think the market's underestimating the extent of fiscal drag that's, that we're going to face next year. And so growth is going to slow. Inflation has peaked. It's not obvious to us that the Fed has to turn around and start hiking aggressively. And so we actually have the first rate hike much later than, the, than when the market's pricing in, steeper curve, you know, the, the front end staying uh, a lot more anchored. But it's ultimately a view on, on the economy and the outlook of the economy as we recover into this post-COVID world. It's also a view on the Fed and believing, Priya, that they won't blink, that they won't change their mind, that they won't get uncomfortable, <clears throat> that they won't change their view, and that maybe that the Fed chair won't change either. How do you get a read on that at this point, Priya, as you look out, not to the end of 2023, but just the next six months? Right. And I think that's a big, so, so that we always struggle with economic outlook or the Fed reaction function. And I think the committee is as split as the market is. You know, and, and I think that December dot plot will show again that there are those who believe inflation is transitory and those that think that we should be hiking. But I think the Fed has taken a pretty big step there. They've tapered sooner than what anyone was looking for. They're tapering much faster than the last time or, or than uh, analyst estimates. So they're responding to the risk. They're, they're in this risk management approach. They're already responding to the risk of high inflation. By the middle of next year, that's when it's going to get really tricky because, you know, do they start to hike? That's when I think that growth outlook is, is going to matter. I think the reaction function doesn't need to change between now and then. All the talk around faster form of tapering, you know, using the balance sheet to tighten financial conditions, we saw how difficult that was in 2013 with the taper tantrum. I don't think the Fed wants to risk it. So we think the threshold for them to change that tapering uh, timeframe is actually very large. So we'll have time to figure out that reaction function based on how, how the data comes out over the next six months. Priya, do you think that the labor market is weaker than most analysts expect? Yes, we do think so, um, particularly because of the slack. I guess our big assumption is that some people who've left the labor force have done so because of COVID, whether it's childcare, whether you're just concerned about getting sick, um, and they will come back. Now, the savings, high savings has buffered some people. They've been able to wait it out for the right kind of job or the high wages or, or for higher wages. But ultimately, that brings them in. And so there's a lot more slack in the labor market. We also think the service recovery will pick up and that will create demand for those jobs. So it's not, it's, a, it's not a weak labor market. It's just the slack. I think where people are really divided is how much slack is there in the labor market. We think actually there's a lot of hidden slack 
And that will become more evident in the first half of next Priya, year. there's an important distinction here. Some people have been saying this is going to be a shorter and hotter cycle. Is your call that that's not true, that this is going to be a long and arduous cycle and that the Fed will be patient? Or is it that the Fed already missed its window to tighten and that at this point it cannot raise rates materially higher than where they are now, given how much debt there is and given the economic momentum that will decelerate meaningfully next year? Right. Great question. I, I think if we compare it to the post-financial crisis cycle, I think it's going to be shorter than that. We had significant fiscal tightening. We didn't have as much easing. So, so I would say this cycle is shorter compared to the 08 cycle because we just had a lot more policy support, um, both fiscal and monetary. But will it be that short? Are we overheating where the Fed will need to really tighten financial conditions? Right. There we do disagree. I think it's going to be longer than the two-year cycle that the market's pricing in. I mean, what's shocking is for those that believe that the labor market slack is gone and they believe the Fed starts hiking mid next year, why is the endpoint of the hiking cycle only one and a half? That's a really pessimistic outlook right. for the productivity of the economy. So we think they'll start later, but they'll be able to hike to two, two and a half or more normal, uh, normalish neutral rate. Priya, in the combat battle, I'm not going to, I'll make it clear as I can. Your call is a career maker or breaker. There's no end or for buts about that. And when John mentioned 2023, I immediately thought of Mario Draghi at the ECB. What does your call and the failure of those guesstimates, what does it mean for the ECB and Lagarde? It hugely advantages her if she gets a misery call. Well, I think all central banks, and we called it the year of living dangerously, because they're all trying to adjust policy in an evolving economic outlook where, you know, what are the structural impacts of COVID? Is COVID transitory? Or is it going to have significant impacts on the labor market or an, or an inflation dynamics that all central banks need to adjust it? So it's a big question for the ECB. It's a big question for the RBA. But our thought is this is going to be the year of divergence. So cross-market trades will make sense. You've got the ECB and the Fed on one side that have run below the inflation target for so long that they can afford to be patient. And then you've got the RBA, the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada, smaller open economies that we think will be forced in to start that process of normalization. So you'd see more divergence. There's some fascinating FX trades that could come off the back of that. Priya, we'd love a comment from you on what Bill Dudley, the former New York Fed president, said on this program in the last 24 hours. He said the Fed funds rate wouldn't top out at around 175, where many people in this market think it will. It could top out somewhere three to four. Granted, he believes that this is crystal ball type stuff and the murky the crystal ball gets, the further you go out. You've got any thoughts on that at the moment, Priya, as you think about starting this journey later? Right. So I really respect Bill. And I, I would say I hope, uh, so, so that's not our call. We have the end point of the hiking cycle closer to two and a half. I hope Bill is right that the economy, maybe because of COVID or all the technology that's been put in, that productivity does move higher. And if that's what's happening, then I'm all for higher uh, rates. If it's uh, you know, if the economy can handle higher interest rates because productivity is higher or maybe population labor force growth grows, then I, then I think the economy can handle it. Our fear is that the productivity doesn't really materially move higher. And we've had a lot more debt in the system. So I think if um, the Fed actually raises rates up to 3%, the economy won't be able to handle it. The financial conditions or the interest sensitive sectors, which is a, the, the entire economy is more levered. So I think it's the knock-on effects that we struggle with, but we'll be watching productivity and maybe, the, the, you know, there has been that silver lining that we, uh, you, we can just take labor force productivity that much higher. 
Priya, super sharp. Love the outlook. We've had a read of it in the last 30 minutes. I'm going to spend this afternoon reading it too. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Priya Misra there of TD Securities. Let's get right to it. We continue this year-ahead view with Andrew Sheets. He's chief cross-site strategist at Morgan Stanley. Andrew, I've never seen it like it is right now. Let's start with the why. Is the reason there's such a variance of opinion across global Wall Street simply because of this natural disaster and the boom American economy right now? We don't know how that's going to unfold, do we? Well, look, I think there are a lot of uncertainties across different axes of the market debate. We are dealing with a 2022 where a lot of extraordinary policy is not going to be there for, for markets in the same way. The, the training wheels are off, so to speak. And I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty around how much does that affect market multiples and, and valuations and performance. And then I think we're also dealing with an inflationary dynamic that we haven't seen in, in some time. If you look at break-even inflation expectations, they're near the highest in 30 years. Our economists think that inflation is going to moderate as 2022 goes on, but there are obviously different opinions around that. So I think investors are uniquely facing some, some really big, very interesting questions as we look at the year ahead. Andrew, when I look at your year ahead and some of the research you put out over the weekend. I enjoyed reading it all. What stood out for me, though, is you put out an index call of 4,400. But when I read through the research itself, you almost de-emphasize the index call. It doesn't seem that relevant to what you're thinking elsewhere. Can you just build on that for us, Andrew? Sure. So, so look, I think there's some interesting factors about how we're, how we're thinking about the, the year ahead. I, I think first is if we think about you know, the equity market narrowly, especially the US equity market, the, the world's largest equity market, we are cautious on the year ahead. We, we do think the market ends 2022 lower, but we think that there could be a wide range around that. We think the market could trade both higher and lower over the course of, uh, of next year before ending a little bit lower. And we think single stock dispersion is going to remain really high. And so I think in these mid-cycle environments like we're in today, you get less of the action at the high level of the market more of the alpha, more of the importance is that stock selection underneath the market. And we think that's a really important theme for U.S. equities next year. I noticed the overweight in Europe and in Japan versus the underweight in the U.S. too. Does the same story apply? A little bit less so, actually. I think Europe and Japan will be a little bit more straightforward beta markets where, look, Europe and Japan are very unique for satisfying two really important conditions. We think they usually outperform. These are assets that usually outperform at this stage of the economic cycle and they are cheaper than they usually are at this stage of the economic cycle. And, and very few assets uh, tick both of those boxes at the moment, but Europe and Japan do. So you know, we think those are both markets that can deliver a, a, about a 10% return next year, and, and they'll be some of the better places we think investors can hide out, and we think that performance will be relatively broad-based. How much do you think that the Fed holding off on raising rates as quickly as people expect will lead to a steepening in the yield curve, an overweight in financials, sort of a sort of tailwind to some of these cyclical trades? Yeah, Lisa, I'm really glad you asked about that because I think there are two really kind of interesting factors about how we, we see this playing out. The first is the market might not believe our view immediately. There's there's no reason for it to, right? There's I think very little incentive for the Federal Reserve to come out in January or February and say, we're, we're not going to hike rates in the second half of the year. Why, why would they? So that is a reason why we actually think the dollar can start off the year stronger, why we can get real yields rising in the first part of the year. I think the market could 
act with a little bit more of a hawkish tint to it. And that's the way our interest rate strategists are thinking about things. Now, I also think that as you move into, as you move throughout the year, our view is that the hikes that the Fed is not going to do in 2022 simply get shifted back into 2023, 2024, that the market starts to think, look, starting a little bit later is going to mean that the Fed is ultimately going to be able to hike more. And so the curve will steepen, the curve will steepen between the two-year point and the five-year point. And again, that's that's a really key part of how our interest rate strategy is, is thinking about the year ahead. So if the dollar is going to strengthen, does that mean that going into uh, the beginning of the year, you want to be overweight stocks? In other words, that this nuanced call uh, calls for a front loading of all gains and then perhaps a pretty steep sell off mid to later in the year. Well, you know, the, the, the stronger dollar will tighten financial conditions. I think that's a reason why we are we are waiting uh, to turn bullish on, on emerging market assets. Uh, EM assets have have really underperformed in 2021. They, they are in many cases cheap, but we would like to get that dollar strength out of the way first. And, and if I think about the other markets, look, the, the weaker Euro, the weaker Yen, we think can, can act as near-term tailwinds to, to Europe and, and Japan. While, you know, for the US, it's, it's gonna increasingly become, I think, a question around how much is this dollar strength starting to impact earnings. So we, we do think the earnings story is pretty good in the US equity market. Our, our caution is almost entirely around the multiple, not around the earnings side, but it's another factor. It's another tightening of financial conditions that we have to be mindful of. Andrew, just final question. When you sit down with a team and you do this work with Ann and Zena, with Mike Wilson, with everybody else, Matt Hornback over at Morgan Stanley too, this Fed call, how Fed chair dependent is this call? Well, you know, I as, as we think about it, we, we, we're not sure that it is as dependent as it might otherwise be. We think that the Fed is going to be facing moderating core CP, core PCE throughout next year, a core PCE rate that's going to be well below the CPI rate, well below the headline inflation rate that, that others might be focused on. And so that there's going to be, I think, a strong argument for some patients, whether it is Chair Powell or whether it is uh, somebody else. So uh, that's not the main determinant of, of our call for patients. Um, our, our determinant is around the inflation path and, and how we think the Fed responds to that path. Andrew, love catching up with you. Great work. Send our best to the team. Well, you're Andrew Sheets there of Morgan Stanley on the outlook for 2022. Uh, right now, Dana Peterson is going to join. Excuse me, Dana Peterson uh, to join us uh, right now, Chief Economist at the Conference Board. Dana, you, you, the heritage of the Conference Board is so much about a reading of the American consumer. What is the distinction you see now in your research? Well, our last reading on Consumer Conference was in October, so I know there have been other readings out there for November, but that last reading showed that people were still pretty optimistic. They were still looking forward to buying things, uh, cars, appliances, big ticket items, and even going on vacation. And also our holiday outlook uh, survey indicated that even though people anticipated that things would cost more, they were still looking to buy and spend about the same amount of money this year that they spent last year. Dana, how much is this potentially people bringing forward their purchases ahead of the holidays to get ahead of the crunch with supply chains? Like, for example, people buying Christmas trees in November, the middle of November from Home Depot. I think there's definitely that's definitely happening when we look at uh, sporting goods, toys and hobby uh, sales uh, for 
October, they were pretty strong. And even I went out and <laughs> bought all my Christmas toys ahead of time in October. So we do think that some people are probably buying in advance of expectation of, of store shelves being understocked. And certainly inventories are a big issue. Are we going to see an increase in inventories in the fourth quarter to help us see a real bounce back in GDP growth after the soft reading in the third quarter? Well, it also is a question of whether the uh, strength in the retail sales can continue into December or whether we've kind of front loaded the data. That's a great question. That's really not going to be borne out until we see uh, November and December data. Um, but again, very strong intentions among people, especially folks looking to buy clothing, um, and also high-tech goods. And, and I'm, I'm very optimistic and certainly uh, encouraged to see the auto sales pop up because indeed we know that there's been this semiconductor crunch and certainly there's uh, more demand for cars out there and probably will help bolster sales for the balance of this year. Dana, how uncomfortable do you think the Fed is right now with this incoming data over the past couple of weeks? Well, I think what the data are telling us is that after the Delta variant setback, the economy getting back on track, um, even though the, uh, <laughs> the uh, restaurant and bar sales uh, were, were flat, um, and probably in real terms, they might have been a little bit negative. It's, we're seeing mobility data pick up. People are getting back out there. And certainly, uh, growth is strong. Inflation is really powerful at this point. Um, inflation expectations, at least in the short term, the delta is pretty steep. Um, and also, labor markets are healing. So I would imagine that we're getting to the point where the Fed can feel hey, you know what, we have reached full employment. We're well beyond our, our expectations for inflation. Uh, let's go ahead and start thinking about normalizing policy next year. Adena, when you say we're getting to the point of full employment, what are you looking at to guide you? And how close are we actually? Just put some numbers on that. Sure. Well, we know that there are 4.2 million persons that are still absent from the payrolls report. However, we also know that tons of people retired uh, about thir 3 million potentially, and not all of them are necessarily going to come back. So when you look at the participation rate, it's probably telling a story that is, um, you know, a little underrepresentative of what's going on in the labor market. If we continue to see roughly half million jobs added over the next few months, and also anticipating that folks aren't coming back from retirement, we're probably pretty close to full employment. And certainly once we reach that, I think the Fed will feel comfortable with starting to normalize. What? What inflation rate is the inflation rate that makes wage growth impossible? In your head, is it 3% inflation or is it some statistic higher? <laughs> um, I'm not sure what that rate is, but I would imagine, even though uh, uh, the Fed signaler indicated that uh, they're not seeing a wage price spiral right now, it's hard to imagine that some of these increases in wages aren't filtering down to consumers. I mean, certainly that's what we're hearing <laughs> at the conference board from our members. So um, I would imagine that as we see wages increase uh, in the BLS reports, uh, employment reports that the Fed will become less comfortable and potentially become more concerned that there will be this spiral and that they need to do something to address it. Dana, thank you for being with us this morning to break this down. Dana Peterson there of the conference board. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.